0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week. And with me are Craig Jarvis, Brian Murphy in D.C., and special guest Dan Kane here to talk about his latest story on House Speaker Tim Moore. Um, It was an eventful week. We had uh, the new uh, North Carolina legislature for 2019 and 2020 uh, take office, uh, sworn in. Uh, The scene on the floor was uh, new legislators bringing their uh, kids to uh, see them take the oath of office, Uh, all the pageantry of that. There's about a um, quarter of the new Senate and uh, about a fifth of the new House that are um, new members, so there's a lot of uh, new faces. We have uh, seven new Democrats and six new Republicans in the Senate, and uh, 17 new Democrats and nine new Republicans in the House. And uh, if you care to learn about the, the new legislators, you can uh, find it on our web page, uh, uh, Under the Dome webpage page, or um, by going to newsobserver.com and searching. Um, but today, I want to talk with uh, uh, Craig and Dan and Brian about two things. Uh, one is uh, Tim Moore and the other is the uh, ongoing federal shutdown. Um, so uh, Brian we're in I think I'm not sure if we're in day 20 now uh, but we're we're going on three weeks uh, of the shutdown over uh, the wall and um, I'm wondering if you're seeing any cracks in the uh in the
1: shutdown well today's day 21 um and it started before christmas and now uh, it it may be the longest shutdown in u.s history Uh, 21 was the longest so it appears that we're headed for the longest shutdown in government history although this is just a partial shutdown um, it does impact about 800,000 federal workers somewhere in the neighborhood of about 7,000 in north carolina I have seen very little um, sense that this shutdown is going to end anytime soon, although if President Trump were to declare a national emergency, which he's talked about doing several times, then this could, uh, that could be one way out of the shutdown. He declares a national emergency. Um, the House and Senate pass these appropriations bills that, they, that have bipartisan support, and that's how uh, the president gets the funding that he wants for the wall. Senator Tillis, uh, among another, other groups of uh, Senate Republicans, tried to come up with a broader compromise, um, but they were stymied yesterday, um, and so that's seemingly going nowhere. So the only way out at this point appears to be this, this emergency declaration, of which there are some uh, dubious legal claims. Uh, some people believe it's not legal. Some people believe it is legal. It will likely end up in court, but that may be the way to open up the government.
0: What role is uh, the North Carolina delegation playing in all this, Um, especially Mark Meadows, who's uh, the head of the uh, Conservative Freedom Caucus and has generally been um, uh, a cheerleader for using government shutdowns in this way?
1: Yeah, it's pretty fair to say that there might not be a shutdown if not for Mark Meadows. Um, A couple weeks ago before Christmas, uh, we were headed to this uh, deadline. And President Trump, uh, through aides or perhaps even the vice president, told the Senate that, hey, look, pass, pass the bill, spending bills, keep the government open, it'll be fine. Uh, we'll deal with this after the holidays. We'll deal with it in February. The right wing um, conservative talk show hosts and Mark Meadows revolted. There was a revolt basically saying that if Trump does this, his presidency is over. No one will ever vote for him. He's giving up on the wall. And so they decided now was the time to to make their stand um mark meadows equated it to the alamo he said nobody remembers that uh, the americans or or the the people trying to defend the alamo i'm not sure if they were american at the time but the people trying to defend the alamo lost um he said nobody remembers that what they remember is that they fought at the alamo and so this was the last stand for for house conservatives and they've made their stand um and that, that's sort of how we got here mark meadows was pitching um, a couple of ways to get out of the, the shutdown, including trading maybe TPS protections. It's temporary protected status protections for people who usually come to the United States after a natural disaster in their country. So we're talking about Haitians, um, you know, people from Ecuador, some countries that Honduras, some countries that have suffered some... Um, natural disasters in the past, and and the the U.S. has allowed some citizens to come into the country under this TPS program. Trump has tried to do away with that temporary protected status for a lot of these people, Um, and so that was one thing that Meadows offered, maybe maybe an extension of temporary protected status, which is something the Democrats want for moving some money around in the budget to go to a border wall but I think it's fair to say that without Mark Meadows there may not be a shutdown and uh he is saying that you know the phone calls running into his office are adamant that Republicans and the President should not under any circumstances cave right now and so you you have he's set it up this way and others like Lindsey Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina have set it up this way too that if Trump gives in uh, his presidency is over and he'll never get anything accomplished and, and his base will abandon him um, So Republicans think that and then Democrats think that too So so there's no reason to compromise for Democrats if they think this is a chance for them to to end the Trump presidency so it's it's really a sticky uh, problem up here in DC and I'm, I'm not sure how it ends
0: a few Republican senators have spoken out against uh, the shutdown and say it said we should open up the government even if there isn't a border wall. Um, what about uh, North Carolina's senators?
1: Yeah, Senator Tom Tillis has, um, like I said, he worked with a group of Republicans to try to come up with a broader immigration for border security compromise. Uh, the deal they were talking about included DACA. It included this T- these TPS. It included changes to the asylum program and, and changes for refugees. That really didn't get very far. Um, part of the reason is President Trump believes that uh, the Supreme Court is going to overturn um, President Obama's DACA declaration, and that will force Democrats to the table uh, once those children are in jeopardy of being deported. And so that leverage point is not strong enough right now for, for the president to use. But unlike some other people who are running in 2020, Senator Tillis has not called on uh, the government to reopen and have this funding fight after that. Um, Senator Cory Gardner from Colorado, Senator Susan Collins from uh, Maine – um, Senator Lisa Murkowski ha- have all called for the government to, to reopen, uh, and Murkowski may not have done that, but but have all called for the government to reopen, and we'll talk about border funding later. Uh, Senator Tillis has not gone there yet.
0: Uh, Craig and, and Brian might want to weigh in on this too, but Craig, wh- you've been looking into the, what are the impacts uh, of the shutdown on North Carolina. We know maybe something like 7,000 federal employees uh, are affected, uh, although it sounds like the numbers are a little... Uh, up in the air, a little questionable um, but what what is happening on the ground because of the shutdown?
2: Well, I guess we're just starting to see it unfold now, three weeks into it uh I think today was their first missed paycheck uh so we're starting to see hear more rumbling uh of course we here at uh at research Triangle Park we had the uh, a big ePA presence there are about two thousand people there who were uh furloughed um, We just found out uh. Some of the other ramifications are the farmers trying to process disaster assistance grants from the hurricanes. They've, um, they're kind of stuck in the middle because these uh, county offices aren't open for the farm service. And I f- forget what it's called. But uh, there's that. There's, there's um, kind of
0: some bureaucratic uh, hoops, too, it sounds like, where the, they, they have certain money, but it hasn't been published in the Federal Register yet. Right, and right. so that, uh, that the, is that really keeping people from... Right. Getting uh, getting help from for hurricane relief.
2: Yeah, apparently that's a, certainly a point that uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper is making, c- trying to take some pot shots at the uh, at the president, really for not uh, for, for delaying. He's saying there's they can't process already approved millions of dollars for disaster relief here, and there's other and it could slow down uh, some immediate uh, rebuilding efforts that are that are underway. So that's going on. Um, We found out that uh, they're keeping an eye on things like food stamps and and that kind of thing. They Generally, most state agencies that have some federal uh, connections with uh, either federally funded positions or program funding have enough to take care of this month, but if we get into February, they're going to get real nervous real fast. Uh, We just found out that um, a couple lawsuits have been filed this week on behalf of... um, a couple of uh, federal employee unions, in, uh, including uh, the, the uh, correctional officers in federal prisons, which affects us here, uh, the butner and uh, there 's apparently quite a few people uh, uh, you know that are that are in this category of having to show up to work and not be paid while they 're working because they 're deemed deemed essential and so that 's an issue that 's been litigated in the past two thousand and thirteen there was a, a big uh, uh, shutdown. Um, and they won a ruling that said, basically, you have to get some kind of at least minimum pay if you're working. So that's, that's just kind of a side trip. We'll see where that goes. Um, and if I'm a
0: furloughed employee or if uh, someone who is working without pay, can I get unemployment?
2: Yeah, you're pretty much just like anybody. You get unemployment. Then when you go back to work, assuming you get back pay, then you've got to pay back. The, the state unemployment system, as that's that's considered an overpayment, but they, you know, you do, you do get unemployment, and then there's some restrictions too about outside jobs. Like if you're an EPA employee, you have to be careful what kind of outside work you might be trying to uh, to moonlight on. Right, because if you're
0: trying to get unemployment, there's some work requirements for that. Right, right. So right. Th-
2: th- th- you have to kind of navigate all that yeah. as well. The thing, uh, Brian, that interests me uh, is that you know where this where this emergency money the president's talking about would come from. When they I've I've heard disaster funding uh, is that could that come out of our skin? <laughs>
1: I, I believe it could. Right now, most of the money that they're talking about is from California and from Puerto Rico, but certainly the North Carolina has been impacted by these emergency declarations in the past, and some of the money could come f- from North Carolina. Um, it's unclear at the moment exactly where the money would come from. As I said, right now they're talking mostly California, Puerto Rico, some Texas money. Um, but, yeah, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I think uh, you know another area that's been impacted are TSA workers um, at airports. Uh, we saw in Miami that they've closed one of the terminals uh, in Miami because of TSA workers not, not coming into work because they're having to work for free. Um, we, we've heard about possible disruptions in Charlotte and the Raleigh Airport. Um, I think we've seen some of the pictures from national parks, which you know, are overflowing with trash, or uh, out at um, uh, the Joshua Tree National Park, some of the trees have been damaged because nobody's there to, to monitor the park. One, one interesting thing is that the Trump administration has tried to minimize the effects of the shutdown. Um, in all kinds of ways Uh, they've tried to extend the food stamp program through other funds that they have Uh, they've tried to really minimize the impact Um, the Obama administration came under a lot of fire for trying to maximize the impact of of a federal shutdown Um, but one of the reasons you want to maximize the impact is so that people feel it and then they pressure their lawmakers to get back to Washington and to solve this crisis by by minimizing the effects of the shutdown to, to whatever degree they can uh, There's not that pressure. There's not that boiling point to tell your lawmaker to get back cut a deal open the government Let's get going here um, it, It's an interesting change in strategy and and you wonder where that pressure point is going to be If the federal government is trying to minimize the impacts of this, maybe it is with uh, transportation workers who decide I can't go a month without getting paid, Uh, maybe they start striking, maybe they all stop coming into work. Where is the pressure point that enables, uh, that that tells lawmakers, okay, we we have to solve this, um, and we can deal with border later, or maybe it forces Democrats to compromise on on border security right now, but where is that pressure point going to come?
2: What specific thing we saw, which seemed a little alarming, I don't know what the reaction is, that that uh, the state environmental agency has been testing the water in the lower Cape Fear uh, river basin for uh, evidence of Gen X chemical, potentially toxic chemical. And uh, that's been put on hold to some extent because they what they usually do is send the sample, test samples to... Uh, to Georgia for the for an EPA laboratory, and that lab is closed down now. So they're all all these they're still collecting the samples, but they're all being refrigerated in a Fayetteville facility. So that's just, that's one look.
3: Anybody? Anybody?
0: I, I, Go ahead.
1: An, another place, yeah. sorry to interrupt, is, is the Food and Drug, uh, the Food Safety Administration is, not, is no longer testing, doing, producing random, you know, tests on food safety. So if there were a, an outbreak of E. Coli or Salmonella uh, for some product that didn't get tested because of the shutdown, that's, a, that's another area where pressure might might build.
0: And even the lawsuits about uh, uh, hog waste. Uh, at at uh, Eastern North Carolina, farms are on
2: hold. Right. One was I think the fifth. This might be the fifth trial uh, was supposed to begin this week, and the judge delayed it because there's uncertainty about being able to pay when, when they'll be able to pay jurors their mileage and their stipend for coming in. Uh, other courts are, are going, you know, forward as best they can. There's not like a blanket shutdown of federal courts, but uh, you know, in this case, the judge made the decision to to put it on hold.
0: Let's Unless you have, unless there's anything else, let's um, move on here to uh, Tim Moore's uh, House Speaker Tim Moore's uh, ethics investigations and a story that uh, Dan, you, and Will wrote this week uh, that revealed a former aide to Moore, while he was working in the speaker's office, uh, went to environmental officials at the state level and uh, had an inquiry. Uh, which might not have been unusual, except this was an inquiry about Moore's private property.
3: That's so right. So, tell us about that. Yeah, this uh, this all came out in some emails that had been requested by a, a Washington group, uh, Campaign for Accountability. Uh, they had filed an initial complaint in March of last year uh, after looking at uh, some other another big set of emails between uh, Speaker Moore and DEQ officials uh, in, involved in trying to make sure that this property he co-owns, and it's a, this, is a, uh, this was at that point a closed chicken processing plant in Siler City. Uh, he and a, a group of uh, co-owners in a company called South Land, uh, Southeast Land Holdings had purchased it in 2013 for about $85,000, and they were looking to resell it, uh, but they had a problem with two underground t- storage tanks. Uh, one held diesel, the other held gas, and as it turned out, the one holding gas uh, was a leaky tank. And so uh, those tanks needed to be taken out. Um, uh, some DEQ staff uh, got concerned about how quickly or um, uh, Moore and his uh, um, uh, partners were getting this addressed. At one point, there was a uh, fine uh, suggested and then the fine was lifted and, and uh, the folks with Campaign for accountability uh, believed that, or at least were concerned that this may indicate, you know, some special treatment for the speaker. Uh, so they had filed that initial complaint, uh, and at that time they were concerned that maybe they weren't seeing all the correspondence. So they followed up with additional additional requests or requests, and, and in late November they got a whole other series of of emails back, and we'd been in contact with them, and they, you know, gave us kind of a heads up that they were still, you know, pushing. And so we requested all all that had been given to the campaign from DEQ. So we reviewed all this ourselves, and what we saw was, in uh, March of 2016, you know Mitch Gillespie, who is a former, you know, long-term uh, lawmaker uh, out in the mountains, uh, who later then became an assistant secretary to DEQ. And and and, in, and when Speaker Moore um, was elected Speaker, joined his staff as a senior policy advisor. So that was in. So that was in 2015. A year later, um, he's inquiring uh, of DEQ's legislative liaison, "Hey, what's the status on this underground tank, you know, issue?" And there were kind of two things going on. One was making sure that the tanks were properly cleaned up, and the other was. You know, getting into seeing they could get some money from a, a special fund that helps pay for these cleanups, and so, so Mitch inquires of the legislative liaison uh, on I think it's March second, and I mean within hours there's just a series of emails am, amongst a bunch of DEQ staffers, and one of them is a hydro, hydro, hydrogeologist who says, hey, you know, I, I was. Pulling that one out of the queue this week, and and I'm gonna approve it, you know, and and so it was like very quickly this thing got kind of resolved, and and they ended up getting you know twenty two thousand to help cover the forty two thousand dollar cost of the tank cleanup, and you know why is this an issue? Well, um, you know the, the state constitution you know has language in there, it's kind of known as the public purpose clause, I believe, where, where basically public officials and public resources are supposed to be used for the public good. And when you've got an employee on your staff who is uh, um, taking action uh, with regard to your private business, well, that raises a question as to whether or not we've got an ethics problem. And um, so I guess the next step here is to see whether ethics officials who had investigated the original complaint uh, will take interest in this new material that has surfaced um, uh, when, uh, speaker Moore, you know, we, we tried to talk to speaker Moore. we tried to talk to Mitch Gillespie, uh, neither uh, returned our, um, you know, our calls, uh, or, uh, an email. I tried to reach speak. I, I reached out to sp- the speaker Moore's attorney, uh, but on opening day, um, after the session, uh, you know, uh, reporters were there asking him about different things. And one did ask about, about this, this issue. And he said, well, I didn't, you know, this is the first I knew about it. Uh, and I don't know whether Mitch got in, you know, was involved in this or not. And then he released a letter from December 28th showing that the Ethics Board had dismissed the complaint regarding his interactions with DEQ. problem is that that, that letter makes no reference to Mitch Gillespie's actions, and it also raises the question of you know, how, if they interviewed all these, these you know, the DEQ officials about you know, what happened uh, regarding this chicken plant, you know, why isn't that – did anybody tell them, oh, hey, you know, Mitch Gillespie was asking about this? You know, so, so this is a whole interesting, you know, kind of turn of events in, in this story. And, you know, we'll we'll obviously be staying on it. The, uh,
0: you know, the the amount of money that they got as a subsidy to clean up the underground tanks is one thing. But it seemed like there, uh, there were kind of bigger stakes involved, too, because it all had to do with uh, whether – Moore and his partners were able to sell this company. Um, it, it seemed like the sale, at least to some extent, was contingent on um, being able to get into the uh, the brownfields program, right? And that might not have happened without this uh, DEQ approval.
3: Yes, there's uh, correspondence in there uh, fr- between a couple of DEQ staffers, and this was several months after uh, they got the the approval, where. Uh, another uh, uh, hydrogeologist for DEQ basically said that, you know, um, uh, that there were there were these legislative inquiries, you know, and that, that seemed to um, they were concerned that the underground tank issue was slowing things down, and they were trying to get this into the brownfield program. And um, the brownfield program basically provides limited liability and uh, a tax break, a property tax break, to. The redeveloper of a of a uh, contaminated site, and at the time that Mitch is asking about this, uh, you know they're trying to sell the plant, and and Monterre, which is a big chicken processing company, I think they got, I think they're headquartered both in Delaware and I think Arkansas too, uh, and and so they wanted to to get into a brownfield agreement uh, um, to to protect them, and and I assume you know get some uh, property tax. Uh, um, uh, breaks uh, tied up with this, and so uh, getting clear of the underground tank matter was pretty important to move to, to that step, and and that's what these two staffers were talking about, uh, and 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 the staffers you know indicated that you know these legislative inquiries uh, you know you know apparently sped up you know you know moving this thing forward. So again, a whole you know, looks like a, looks like something here that that the ethics board. Um, uh, we'll, I presume would we'll take a look and, and in fact campaign for accountability uh, we expect to see a new complaint from them uh, uh, focusing specifically on this
0: and uh, I don't know I can't remember if you said Dan but um, we should say that the um, old complaint was thrown out uh, and that's, that's right. something that uh, Speaker Moore uh, revealed um, when uh, uh, we asked him about it on opening day of the legislature and uh Will Doran's here. He must have heard his ears burning uh, or felt his ears burning because he's, uh, he's here now with us. Anything to add, Will? What was the um, uh, scene like when he was talking about uh, this? Did he sort of have a letter ready to um, present to reporters who were asking uh, him about this at session?
4: He um, did. He did. And that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, Speaker Moore has really not been keen to talk about this. Even when there's been good news for him, like obviously getting this complaint dismissed is objectively good news for him. The state ethics board says that he didn't do anything wrong and that happened on december twenty eighth that that letter was sent and um you know nobody in the press was told, and the you know he he had this re- letter ready to go when we started you know asking him questions about it but you know it should also be noted when we were when Dan and I were writing this story you know. Dan tried to contact him several times in the days leading up to it, no response. Um, So he's he's really been trying to just kind of not talk about it, even, you know, whether it's looking bad or whether it's looking good for him. He's just kind of got a a policy of silence. And even at the legislature, when he was asked about it, the, you know, the question was, is it, or was it appropriate for Mitch Gillespie to have been making these calls for, you know, as state legislative staffer making calls on behalf of a politician's private business? And he didn't answer that question. Uh, all he said was that he wasn't aware of the phone calls um, so he he didn't answer the larger question of you know if this did happen, would it have been appropriate Yeah, we also had some difficulty
3: with d e q just the the various folks who were in these email conversation these com- emails um uh, talking about this uh, just asking them you know uh what they recalled you know what what transpired here and um uh, uh, and so it's been hard to get, you know, a number of the involved people here to explain, you know, what happened. Um, I will say, I don't know if you guys saw, WRAL did follow up on our story, and they got Mitch Gillespie, and he basically called our story fake news, but he would not explain what, whether or not he was contacting people or not, you know. Well, so, it would have been
4: nice of him to call us back when we were asking well, him these questions. It would have been. It would have been. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, I think we'll uh, take a quick break and come back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? We're back with more Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide the most interesting or influential person of the week, Brian Murphy. Who's your headliner? I'll
1: throw out Representative G.K. Butterfield. Um, It's for something that he did behind the scenes. Didn't really get a lot of headlines, although uh, wrote about it in uh, today's newspaper. Butterfield, who is now a chief deputy whip, now that Democrats have uh, the majority in the U.S. House, uh, was asked by Walter Jones to administer the oath of office to to Jones at his home in Farmville, North Carolina. So on f- last Friday, uh, Butterfield went back home to Wilson and then made the short 20-minute drive over to Farmville and, and issued the oath of office to Walter Jones at his home. Uh, Jones is battling an, an undisclosed illness, hasn't been able to make it back to the U.S. Congress since September. Um, Thought he might be able to get there in time for the new swearing in of the new Congress, but wasn't able to do it. And now Butterfield, um, who said that he's been friends with Walter Jones for over 40 years, uh, was able to go administer the oath uh, in a private ceremony at Jones' house. And I just thought that was a cool, uh, given that we're in a government shutdown over uh, partisan wrangling, thought it was a cool bipartisan moment for uh, a Democratic uh, representative to go and deliver the oath to an old friend uh, who's a Republican representative.
0: All right. Representative G.K. Butterfield in the hat for headliner of the week. Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner?
2: Rachel Hunt. She was uh, elected to the state, uh, state house, uh, defeating incumbent Bill Brawley. And uh, she's, of course, the daughter of a former governor who we all know. Uh, what was interesting is at the last, um, last minute before their first day of uh, session uh, this week, uh, the North Carolina Values Coalition put together some allegations that uh, there were campaign or voting irregularities uh, in her district down in Mecklenburg County, and it just sort of uh, seemed to be tit for tat uh, for the whole District Nine s- scandal that's that's going on. I don't know how much how the, the Values Coalition was calling on the Speaker Moore not to seat her, which he he declined. I don't know if he made any comments about that or not, but he he, he ignored it, I think. Uh, so there could have been some drama there. Uh, wasn't, and she is certainly a, a dynasty in, in North Carolina politics, so it just kind of symbolized the, uh, the turmoil that's going on.
0: Yeah, well, we almost uh, got through this whole podcast without mentioning uh, um, uh, voting irregularities, which we haven't even talked about what's the latest in, in District 9, but... Um, all right, uh, new representative Rachel Hunt uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Dan Kane, who's your
3: headliner? Oh my God, I, I'm really at a loss here to come up with one. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna, I'm kind of gonna go back with with Mitch Gillespie. I just, uh, um, you know, he still hasn't really explained, you know, what happened with this with this chicken plant situation, and and so uh, it sounds like there's, you know, uh, he's still a little bit of a man of mystery at this point. So. Okay,
0: Mitch Gillespie uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Lastly, Will Doran, who's your headliner?
4: Uh, Attorney General Josh Stein. I got a uh, call that he wanted to meet with me on Monday and he told me about this, uh, this crazy stat um, that North Carolina is the only state in the country that prohibits same sex dating couples uh, if there's domestic violence in the relationship from getting a domestic violence protective order, something called a 50B here in North Carolina. And um, it's true. Uh, You know, we, every other state that had had kind of a provision saying it only applies to opposite sex couples has cleaned up their language to make it more inclusive. Uh, North Carolina now stands alone. The state uh, association of chiefs of police is backing this, too. Um, It's, you know, not necessarily a, uh, you know, a lefty, progressive kind of thing. It's, you know, it's being framed as really just, you know, giving police another tool to crack down on, uh, on violent crime. Uh, since domestic violence is such a huge problem, it accounts for about one in every five murders in North Carolina is a domestic violence related murder. Um, and there's a court case going on right now, which is why the attorney general was telling me about it. He's getting involved in this. Um, I wrote about it this week. If people are interested, they can, uh, go check that story out. Um, and you see kind of, you know, what, uh, what might happen there, and who knows, maybe this court case will end up fixing it, uh, the Attorney is saying that our law is unconstitutional, or maybe the legislature will step in and do something to fix it. Uh, they're back in session later this month, so we'll see what happens. All right, Attorney General Josh Stein,
0: I see that uh, story is starting to get some national attention um, and uh, definitely was a surprise to, uh, to, to a lot of people that we still have that on the books, or that we have that on the books. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Brian Murphy's choice uh, of Representative G.K. Butterfield, uh, which is a good reason to say that we, uh, we wish the best to Representative Walter Jones, and uh, we hope that he um, recovers and uh, is back in Congress soon. Um, so Representative Butterfield is our headliner of the week, and uh, Brian Murphy is our winner this week. Uh, that's it for Cast and, uh, for, please catch us again, catch us next week, excuse me. And for Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, Dan Kane, and Brian Murphy, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, thanks a lot for listening.